You're listening to the Therapy for Women podcast with licensed therapists Amanda White, Fern Formel, and Gabby Salomone. Whether you're contemplating therapy for the first time, already in therapy, or reconsidering it, this podcast will empower you with tips, advice, and plenty of real talk so you can get the most out of your sessions. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to our podcast. How's everybody doing? I'm doing great. Uh, it's Fern and I again this week, and we are excited to have one of our virtual therapists join us today. Yes, we have Jess on the podcast. As Gabby said, she's one of the virtual therapists at Therapy for Women. She is licensed in Arizona, North Carolina, and Florida. Welcome, yeah. Jess. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here today. Yes, welcome. I was going to say, Jess, we refer to you as Jess P when we're talking Mm -hmm. about you in like ever in meetings or something Mm -hmm. to differentiate you from our other Jess who's based in Philadelphia. Yes. (laughs) Yes, I will say I um, have a love-hate relationship with my name because, you know, I was born in that like late 80s, 90s era where everybody's name feels like it's Jessica. I think Mm -hmm. I graduated with 12. Jessica's. Oh, spicy. So yeah. that's where Jess evolved because I was like, you know what? We can cut my name in half. That's fine. I wonder if that's like, I feel like there's other Jesses out there that are like that too. So probably. Like, yeah. I was in the like the Rachel era, like the Friends era, where I graduated, well, in elementary school, not in high school. In elementary school, I was in school with a lot of Rachels. And, I'm, and now looking back, I'm like, oh, that was the Friends era. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Yeah. 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 That does make sense. Yeah. So, like, yeah. fun facts. Yeah, yeah, no, but welcome. We we are really excited to to have you on, um, and we're going to talk a little bit about career explorations today and transitions and just you know what it means to be on a career path or figuring that out for yourself. Um, yeah. So before we jump into that, Jess, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and even maybe your approach as a therapist, how you came to be a therapist, all those fun things. Yep. Okay. Well, I, like I said, I'm Jess and I have been a therapist for over 13 years. Math is not my strong suit. I'll own that. Um, But I have known I wanted to be a therapist since I was about 14. However, how I came to that realization was that I had some pretty yucky stuff happen to me as a kid. And Um, I was a very difficult client in therapy. I would cross my legs. I was, um, stubborn. I'm still stubborn to these days, but (laughs) that's gotten a little bit better. Um, and I had a woman who I love dearly and, um, I worked with her for over a decade and she helped me change my perspective to the world being a dark and scary place. Mm. into how do I embrace my fears and look at things differently and trust myself to get through it. And so one of the things that I will always hold very close is uh, one of our first meetings. I had probably been to five therapists because they just kept bouncing me around. Um, And uh, I wouldn't talk. Oh, Oh, you did the silent treatment. I did a silent treatment. Oh, I like those clients when they come in. They, you know, especially the adolescent where they sit there with their arms crossed and they like just stare you down. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. I was 13. Ooh, that's Hormone, stubborn. Um, I went to a small private Catholic school. So there was lots of rules, lots of regulations. And so I didn't talk. And so about like 10 minutes into the session, she starts writing vigorously on her clipboard. 
I get mad. I'm like, I didn't say a word. How could she be assessing me? How could she be doing any of these things? And so it's really cool. I'll wrap this up is um, I got to keep that piece of paper. She oh. wrote down everything that she was worried about for me on that piece of paper. Mm, she also I wrote a grocery that. list. She also <laughs> wrote something that she was thinking about with her son. And so she wrote all those down. She said, and so like another 10, 15 minutes go by. There was a coffee table between us. And again, I'm sitting across from her in her office. Coffee table, and she slides the clipboard again, like kind of aggressively through a coffee table and says, this is what I did with my time. What'd you do with yours? Oh, I love that intervention. And I was like, I remember as a teen being like, oh, she'll call me. Like she will, she's not afraid that I'm just going to sit here. I'm not going to be able to bully my way out of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, I worked with her. She helped me uh, through many things, including my soreness. But I actually have triple telomania, which is a unique thing about me. And I always am okay with sharing that diagnosis. And it's a, it falls under OCD, but I pulled my eyelashes out for years as a coping strategy. She really helped me find other healthier coping strategies. That's awesome. And I was like, if I can help other people have a better life, let's do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's awesome. I was gonna say that's like a mix of like Amanda's story with your story, right? Like they're Mm -hmm. very parallel. And I think that's a little, you know. I don't want to be too presumptuous. Like a lot of us have these different weird experiences that just kind of direct us to this quote unquote life. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm totally going to steal that intervention, by the way. I think that I is that amazing, right? I might, yeah. because so I, I do see adolescents and mm-hmm. one of my favorite things is like, if they just don't want to talk to me, I'm like, that's fine. Like we still have to sit here for 50 minutes and like, it doesn't bother me if you just want to sit in silence, but you're not really going to get anything out of it. So you get to decide what you want to do with this time. Yeah. I was going to say, I actually used to use the one where like I'd pull the laptop out and I would sit and I'd start doing my notes (laughs) (laughs) while they sat in my office and just stared me down. And I'm just like, well, I've got things to do. You've got to be here. I'm not going to waste my time. I'm not going to stare at you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) And, so, so, and sometimes it falls flat and sometimes it works. I find that more often than not, with adolescents particularly, it works because they don't want to sit in silence any more than the rest of us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No. But that sounds like a really – it sounds like, I mean, it just – it worked really well for you, Jess. Mm-hmm. She definitely caught me off guard. And it was the first time where I didn't feel like I was so much the problem. She made mm-hmm. me feel like uh, like I'm going to be okay mm-hmm. and I'm just going to notice like what you're doing. And so it was, uh, it was life-changing and I'm super grateful for her. Awesome. I love that. That's yeah. great. Yeah. So within your specialties then, right, we have you for specializing in anxiety and depression, substance use, grief, and career exploration. Mm-hmm. And so obviously we talked about it today. We're going to talk a little bit about career exploration. So how did that become one of your specialties? So I think I have a unique pathway as a therapist. I went to graduate school and it was very difficult. So I was one of the first people at UNC Charlotte to do what's called a dual track program in mental health and substance use. Yeah, oh. that was a little crazy because I decided let's do them both at the same time. Why not? <laughs> Don't fully recommend doing that while you're working. But and so I had the opportunity uh, my last year to do an internship at the men's homeless shelter. Hmm. And so I ended up staying on after my internship for about four years. And so I got to see different levels of careers, 
how mental health and substance use weighs in to how mm-hmm. successful we can be um, in our careers and sometimes even how substances enabled them to advance in careers until it got to a certain level and then it got destructive. And so I learned a lot about helping people find out what their skills and strengths are, even when they didn't believe they had any. Mm, okay. And so I, I loved that there. And so think lots of skill building, resume building, um, even sending, being able to partner with different programs in our community to help learn skills or trades, different things like that, partnering with different companies that would take individuals differently abled. And we would just partner with them and figure out, hey, what's something that you feel like will help you feel useful and help us get your feet back on the ground? And then transition, uh, an old professor from UNC Charlotte called me and said, hey, I have a job for you. And I was like, well, I'm not really looking, but okay, what's the job? And she said, I need you to help run a collegiate recovery program. And I was like, oh, what? I had before I became that job, I had no idea that these existed and got really excited. And so essentially, um, a collegiate recovery community is a community on campus that helps students, depending on the community, either stay sober or manage their recovery while being successful in their academics. I love that. I love that. And so in both of those roles, I was able to help individuals in different levelings, different abilities, different education levels figure out what it meant to find employment that A, gave them some sort of value, but also how to separate versus what the world and society or even our family members or loved ones are telling us versus actually what we want to do. Because in both scenarios, there was so much pressure from outsiders to do a certain job or to do a certain task. And often that led to disappointment and burnout. Mm. And so I'm really passionate about helping people find what's their niche, what's going to help them get out of bed in the morning and be like, I'm making a difference, or I'm going to enjoy my day. I'm going to laugh with my coworkers. I'm going to go get a paycheck because I need that paycheck to be able to travel. Or I'm going to, you know, we all have different things that, that encourage us. Um, Mm -hmm. And so figuring out what that is. Mm -hmm. I love that. That's a great, you know, segue into like how to like really figure out you know, after you've been in a job for a while, if it's not really fulfilling you, well, what do I do next? Right. Mm-hmm. I've been there. <laughs> I don't know about just like, it sounds like you've been there. Uh, Fern, you were just like, I know what I want to be, where I want to go. <laughs> I'm... <laughs> no, I, I definitely, uh, I think I, off the top of my head, I definitely have two like job career experiences where I feel like I was at a crossroads and, you know, just thinking, where do I go from here? What do I want to do next? What steps do I have to take? Am I ready to leave? Do I want to leave someplace that I'm comfortable with, even though I'm not happy? It's not fun. No, (laughs) right? Yeah. Like, I think there's, you know, a point where like, yes, we can be like, oh, I'm a therapist and that's what I do. And there's so many different roles we can take in that as a therapist, right? And then there's also like just those general career changes, you know, going from like, I worked an office job for years. And so then it was like, oh, I'm going to go back to school. And that's a huge risk. And people come to therapy and talk about that. So I guess my thought is like, just like when somebody's like, I think I want to go back to school and completely like uproot my life. What do I do? How do you help them make that choice? Mm, I'd probably get really excited. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I'm just gonna be honest. Um, no, I love that. 
<laughs> because I'm sure after like there's like a point where you're like, please just leave that job. <laughs> please do something else. This is sucking your soul out. Like this is not for you. Like you're not meant to do this. You're supposed to be doing something else. And then they like come to that real your client comes to that realization and you're like, that alleluia moment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Big exhale of like, whoo, we finally got there. I'm giggling because a client came to mind as you said that. I'm like, you know, is it anxiety that you're suffering with or is it the job? Because mm-hmm. the other aspects of their life, they had a happy partner and relationship. They were able to feed their soul in a lot of other ways. But being at a job for 40 to 45 hours a week has a huge weight on all of us. Mm-hmm. And so having that, I'm going to say courage to yeah. notice this is causing me either discomfort, distress. I'm not flowing here. I don't feel like I'm achieving what I want to. I don't feel like I'm valued here. And then if they came in and were like, hey, I think I want to go to school. Mm-hmm. or I think I want to look into something completely different. I would first evaluate with them like, all right, how'd you get here? And mm-hmm. if I have a great report client, like I might even be able to answer those questions. But for podcast day, like, Let's talk about how we got here and what are the things that we actually enjoyed about this role and things we don't enjoy and and why might we not? Because I really enjoy being a therapist, but if I had to work in some of the environments I've worked in in the past, I didn't, I didn't quite love it as much. I didn't have the support or the resources that were needed in order to help me feel like I could be the best therapist I could be without burnout. I agree mm-hmm. with that. Yeah. yeah. And so how do we help tweak? Is it the actual task? Or again, is it the environment? And so then how do we translate that into what you want to do? Since I have some experience in in colleges, I would then dig in. Like, so what do we think that we're interested in? And do you have a narrow scope? Or are we still thinking like big, broad ideas? Because college is expensive. Right. It just is. And what are our financials look like? What are our resources? How do we evaluate what we're either going to add or can we pause our current job to go back to school? So like mm-hmm. all the logistics are super important because they can also add stress and anxiety. Okay. So I would monitor those things, but then I would specifically start looking with them at different options and either career paths or majors, depending on how much clarity they had and go from there. I'm really big since I've worked in the college sector to go on campus, unless you're going to do a full online program. I always encourage everybody to go to campus. I truly believe that our body mm-hmm. is going to tell us if we feel comfortable or if we feel like we can succeed here and to mm-hmm. notice, how do you feel when you walk on a campus? How do you feel when you talk to the instructors? How do you feel just being introduced? They mm-hmm. always, every campus has like intro days or get to know us days or possible mm-hmm. um, possible students days. Those are not at all the right words, but Hopefully we're getting addressed here. And I always encourage people if they can to do those because I've had people be dead set on a school. Like I'm going to Wilmington. It's close to the beach. UNCW. They'll get to UNCW and be like, that is not my vibe. That is not my vibe. Um, And so they end up, you know, somewhere like ECU or Western and they really enjoy just having, you know, the unique college town like experience. And so I really always have found it interesting to visit the place and to make sure that their program is is not just what it says on online, what it actually right. is yeah. and to check that out. This resonates with me so much. So I, I applied to a few different schools, but when I was choosing my college, I was between UConn and Salve Regina, which is in uh, Rhode Island. Okay. 
I loved Salve Regina. I, it was a, it's this beautiful old school. The dorm rooms at the time, at least, were like an old mansions. Like who would not Ooh. want to Ooh. go to that school, yeah. right? There were a couple other things. Like my degree was in human development, and I think they only offered it as a minor at that point. Okay, but I I loved. I was so in love with just like the location. But then I went to UConn, and literally on my tour of UConn, I was like, "Mom, can I buy a sweatshirt? This is where I'm going to go to school." Because of that feeling, yeah. because even though Salve Regina was beautiful, and I I'm I'm just I love old historic things in that way. UConn. As again, it, it was the vibe. Like it, yeah. <laughs> it just felt like, oh, this is my place. I can, and also it had human development as a major, and major. that was a, a big pull. But I just very much relate to that that thought process, just of saying, hey, let's go to campus. Let's see how you feel about it. Let's talk about what you could actually get here. Let's talk about what the classes are like, the environment. I do. I agree. I think that's so so important if you have the option of not just being a fully virtual program, like you said. Yeah, yeah. I think that's like a huge thing, and you know, also just getting it, like you said too, Jess, about like, are they actually teaching what they're saying online, or is it like a mm. loose explanation? <laughs> <laughs> are they actually giving that? Like, are the classes like that sound cool and like interesting and good for you actually available and open mm-hmm. and being taught, or is that just to like? you in because that's a thing yeah mm-hmm. yeah the other the other thing I was thinking of as you were talking Jess was you brought up financials right mm-hmm. and that's what I think a lot about when people later in life say they want to go back to school and just the financial constraints because school is so expensive yes. um, yeah and just how limiting that can be right you can say I want to change career paths but in order to do that I need to get a degree in mm-hmm. blank thing. And I can't afford to go back to school or I'm going to be in massive amounts of debt to be able to go back to school. And that's just infuriating. It is. I would agree. And it's really frustrating because then it feels like it puts this huge concrete roadblock in your way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so one of, one of the things I always going along with like going back and checking out the schools is different schools have different opportunities for financial aid. Mm-hmm. And so what does that look like? What are programs that I, I might be able to get involved in? And I also am a big proponent of community colleges. So we partnered a lot um, in the Charlotte area. We have Central Piedmont Community College, and it's one of the largest community colleges in our country, actually, which is amazing. And we partnered with them. They have a ton of resources. And so even though I don't think the university appreciated this, that I would say this while I worked for them, sometimes I felt financially and for the betterment of the student and for the betterment of their finances, going to go get some of those general education classes, going to go knock out some of those requirements, and then coming to the university. Because it, I mean, we're talking tens of thousands of dollars in in savings. Yeah. And then once upon getting into the university, I always talk about finding a university job. So I worked as a student's obtaining success mentor um, that helped students on academic probation succeed in undergrad, which was really cool because I was able to get paid while I was in school. But then also when I got into graduate school, I always had had a graduate assistantship. And so that was able to help shift some of those costs. And in some programs, you could have tuition reimbursement or you could have money. And so like I and their scholarships, I am always, always into it. Yes, it takes work. 
yes, write out a general essay that you can change and flow kind of like you would a resume and plug it into scholarship portals. Because I was shocked at the university, how, how many scholarship opportunities there were, but how often very limited people ever applied for them. Mm. And so I'm, it does, it does take work. I will own that for anybody. It is work to apply for a scholarship. And I don't think college, I don't think college should be as expensive as it is because it is not accessible to, I would even say most people mm-hmm. with the financial constraints without going into a huge amount of debt. Look for the opportunities. If you're super passionate about something that you need a degree in, are there avenues that we could either move that roadblock or let it let it sit down a little bit more so it doesn't quite feel like it's the barrier. It's something we have to work with. Does that like apply also, you think, to master's programs? I would say yes. I would say that I paid less for my master's than I did my undergrad. Yes, it was a shorter period of time, but I had more scholarship opportunities, mm-hmm. but I might be rare here. I was a woman in a substance use field that at a time had more men in the program. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so I was able to apply for like minority scholarships due to substance, the combo of me being a woman and substance use focus. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to apply for some of those scholarships. And it was, for me, it was easier to obtain scholarship and financial aid in a master's program than it was in my undergrad. Interesting. That is interesting. Yeah, I had, I looked for scholarships for my master's and there there weren't a lot of scholarship opportunities. Yeah. For, at least again, that was my experience. I think master's, there's probably a lot more. I think that the universities make the assumption that if you're going for a master's, there's money attached. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, they do. Uh, I ran into that when I went back to grad school and they were like full, like full class tuition. I went to the office and I went, hi, I went here for undergrad and I was a poor kid then. And I'm a poor kid still. Uh, they're like, well, what about your parents' financial assistance? I said, I had zero back when I was 18 and I'm almost 30 and I still have zero. So mm-hmm. <laughs> let's try again, please. <laughs> yeah. and they, got yeah. a finan- they magically had a financial aid package for me. Come up. Magically. Magic. I think that grinds my gears, if I'm honest. Mm-hmm. I think the assumption that students coming into the university are going to have financial assistance from yeah. their parents. Yeah. That's a pretty big assumption. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's why, you know, we're in the crisis that we are with uh, student loans and financial aid debt and all of that. And, you know, we could have a whole nother topic episode on that. <laughs> Yeah, where we, you know, really against that. But, you know, we're not talking about that today. So we're going to stay on topic. (laughs) Yeah, no, but it is it is frustrating because especially in this day and age, if we look at our economy and all of these things, you know, not just now, but particularly now, we should say most kids aren't like graduating high school with money that their parents can give them because most of our parents at this day and age, or at least, par- you know, parents that have kids who are graduating don't have a lot of extra money to be able to give to their kids to afford to go to college, go to a tech school, mm-hmm. you know, start their own business. You know, there's there's so many things, obviously. It's not just college. Like, uh, parents don't have a lot of extra money to give to their kids. And so why is this assumption like, oh, you're going to college for your financial aid, we need to consider your parents' income and what they have. Yeah, that's some ridiculousness because most parents are living paycheck to paycheck. Mm-hmm. We've gone a little off topic here. So <laughs> thinking of this, thinking about career and the frustrations obviously that come with going back to school. Um, again, yeah, we could go into a whole, again, probably another podcast of the expectations of what it means to pick your career before you're even at the age of 18. Yes. Yes. But 
talk about seeing clients who are, you know, exploring their career options. And so before we actually began recording, Jess, you had mentioned that there were some uh, tools that you use Mm -hmm. to start talking to clients about like their needs and their wants for new careers or new jobs. Can you tell us a little bit about those, those resources? Sure. And I'm going to clarify, depending on if the client is 19 mm-hmm. versus mm-hmm. if they're going to their second career, this mm-hmm. might look a little different. But yeah. for a general overview, if someone is think, considering leaving what they do to do something completely different, I always talk about the grief process first. Ooh, I like that. Tell me more about that, please. Going back to like finances mm-hmm. and time, if someone's put in five, 10 years oh, yeah. into a profession that they were once passionate or excited or dedicated to, I mean, that's a lot of our our soul that gets put into work. Because again, it's 40 to 45 hours of presently being there, let alone the time we spent thinking about it, preparing for it, the degrees that we got for it, the um, certifications that we got it for, whatever that might be attached to. So I'd like to talk about it being a grief process. Yeah. I was going to say, I watched a TikTok this morning, actually, about that of like, Gen X, elder millennials, zennials, whatever they want to say, of like, have you gotten to a point where you're like the boss and you don't like your job? What do we do about that? Where do we go next? I'm supposed to start a new job. What am I supposed to do? That's not me personally, but I was like, that's kind of interesting that there's people out there that are like in that age range that are like, well, what do I do next? I'm still supposed to work for another 20 years here. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that's tough too. Because if you're in a place where you've reached a certain status, mm-hmm. moving or joining a different, taking on a different career could could mean a decrease in salary yeah. right. or a decrease in opportunity. And so that has to be part of our discussion. I kind of view it as like Maslow's hierarchy of needs of like, what is the bare minimum that we need and what does that include? So does that include baseline salary of $50,000, but it comes with health insurance? Mm-hmm. Does it have a 401k attached? Like, what are the things that are absolutely necessary on a baseline level in order for you to function and survive? Because if you're used to making $100,000 and then you have to go down to 50, your lifestyle and potentially your house, your car, your expenses, all of those things don't change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really big in how do we help make sure that we can maintain our life or what edits are we willing to make to our lifestyle in order to make something else work? Yeah. yeah. You know, can I, I want to interject right there, the, because Jesse said something that like struck a chord in me. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> How you were saying, you know, like we want to make sure that we can maintain our life as much as possible. And then I was thinking about like those of us who do enter those career changes and aren't willing to make the changes, right? Like we have adjusted to a certain kind of lifestyle mm-hmm. and being resistant or unwilling to say, oh, I, I, And I'm just going to use this as one example. There are many examples of this, but like I can't get my nails done every two weeks, right? Or I can't buy the brand of mac and cheese that I like, right? I have to buy off-brand. Like, again, those are just small examples, but I was thinking about that, like just how we can all be resistant to making those kinds of changes and how if we are making a career change or our salary drops in half, we don't have a choice. Yeah. And that can feel really – scary. It's it's not easy. Maybe put it that way, right? It's not easy to make those changes. But that was 
Well, it was just it was sticking out to me. I was like, yeah, because it's really hard to make those changes, right? It's not it's not easy to have your salary cut in half and say, oh, not only do I still have to pay all my bills the same way, I also now have to give up maybe things that were bringing me joy, things mm-hmm. that were a luxury but they made me happy. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Maybe I went out to dinner twice a week, and now I can only go out to dinner once a month. Mm-hmm. But that was just on my mind as you were talking and just thinking about how hard that must that must be. And I think that's one of the reasons why people get stuck in yeah. what they're doing and then chronic burnout happens. Yeah. Mm. Well, the golden handcuffs, right? Like that's what it mm. is. I forgot about that phrase. Right? Yeah. Like the golden handcuffs of like, I have a stable job. I have good, you know, I have a 401k. I've got a ton of PTO. I, you know, well, all like those things, like my salary's decent. There's some, you know, maybe status with the place I work. And then you're like, but I hate it. This place, like, personally, like I've gone through that. <laughs> I was like, oh, but I hate it. This place is crushing me. Uh, I need to quit. I need to leave. And oh yeah, I'm going to just quit and go back to school full time. <laughs> I'm going to leave that safety and security of being independent and go back to school full time. And, you know, not everybody has the luxury of, you know, taking out financial, like that much financial uh-huh. aid to support themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do think that we're talking about something that is a privilege. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Being able oh, yeah. to shift jobs is a, is a huge privilege and it's yeah. not open to everybody. Oh, yeah, well. absolutely. No, I was going to say, like, when I first got out of grad school, I was shocked that I was offered multiple positions paying less than what I was making with a bachelor's degree. Okay. And I was like, no, absolutely not. I will not, like, I, I'm not going to, yeah, like, take a pay cut like that. Like $20,000 pay cut. And I was like, oh, wow. I have a master's now, people. Yeah. Like, what? I have a license. Yeah. I was supposed to, like, this was supposed to be my ticket out. Mm-hmm. So I think that's part of it, too, is, mm-hmm. is talking about it in longevity. So, like, there are careers that you can go into mass amount of debts, but in five to 10 years, you're going to get out of debt and surpass. Right. Yeah. And then there are careers <laughs> that tend to help with the helping field that you don't make that money back in a short period of time. Mm-hmm. And so thinking about if that's something that the that I can weigh or that I can afford or that I have support in, whether that's a partner or family or whatever that looks like. An activity that's, that stuck out to me that sometimes I do with my clients, and it starts with a big overarching question, and then we kind of get into the nitty gritty is, what's the cost of your happiness? Well, they, they kind of look at me like I'm crazy. They're like, what do you mean? It, are people happy to go to work? Oh, oh. And I'm like, yeah, I think some people are happy to go to work. And they're like, so you're telling me I have to put a monetary amount to my happiness. And I'm like, yeah, I want you to think about what you would associate your hourly rate of happiness. Oh, And again, they look at me like I'm crazy. And then I want you to think about how much money it's costing you to stay in the position you're in. Oh. And a lot of times anger happens here because it's a lot of times they don't which surprised me when I started doing it because I was like, oh, we were talking about happiness and anger's erupting here. A, no one's asked them if they're happy. B, they've never thought about my happiness is worth something. And so they so they get mad. Like, I don't know. No one's ever taught me how to be happier. No one's ever said that that matters to me or should I, I should equate that into my week. So I talk about how many hours you are unhappy and how many hours you're happy. And is the bucket in a deficit? So we can go a lot of different ways with this because, again, different things weigh into our happy bucket. 
But especially when it comes to our job and the financial resources, it sometimes helps with that unwillingness firm that you were talking about, about changing a shift. Mm-hmm. Because hard is hard. It might be hard to take a $20,000 shift in pay, but it's also hard to show up for a work with a job that you can't stand or a manager that doesn't respect you. Mm-hmm. They're yeah. both hard. Yeah. Where do we want to put our energy to and how do we affect our happiness bucket with that? Mm-hmm. I got like chills. Yeah. I love that. Right? Like, cause that really forces you to think about like, what are you doing? And if this is not what's like calling you, right? Like if this is not fulfilling you, that's a lot of hours a week to be unfulfilled. Mm-hmm. Mm. I am going to throw this into you just because I'm a substance use counselor. Okay. I think people who are in a deficit of being able to balance the pressures of a job that they don't like are more likely to use substances to increase happiness. Ooh. I have that in qualitative data. I'm sure I could find it in quantitative data. But often I hear my super kick butt clients who have powerhouse jobs that are getting stuff done. But at the end of the day, they have zero things left for them. And so they lean into a glass of wine or a whiskey or a seltzer, whatever that looks like, as a way to give back to themselves when they've been depleted. I was going to say, like, as an eating disorder therapist, I've also heard clients do this with food and they, well, I deserve this. Yeah. I'm stressed. Right. Just give me, like, let me get another cookie. Let me, you know, have some more ice cream. Same idea. So I go back to the happiness bucket. How is your deficit of this happiness bank account impacting the other areas of your life? Mm. Your relationships, your food. I wonder... Yeah, yeah. As you're saying, like all these things, is it necessarily the job? Like, because maybe they like their, their, what, like the work that they do, but they don't maybe like the company that they're working for. I think that probably happens a lot. I was going to say, I find like when I'm talking with clients myself, even like that's a big thing. Like the work life balance is not there, especially for like my, again, the clients in these like high powered, highly educated roles, like my attorneys. Mm -hmm. My physician's assistants, my NPs, Mm -hmm. you know, they're in these like really high power roles. And they're like, I thought this was everything I wanted. And I am miserable. They're like, I like the work that I do, but my job's asking for this, this and this, like the billables, the, the, you know, the time, like I can't even pay. (laughs) Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. I think culture would be something that I talked about going back to the values that we looked at. And so like, how do I interwove those? Because work culture in different companies is going to make a huge difference in how you feel in being there. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to be bold and use my own example, but I worked within a system within a system, right? A university. Mm -hmm. And there were so many times where Jess became a robot Mm -hmm. versus a human. And I was really good at that. I was really good at putting in the hours. I was really good at coming up with ideas. I was really good at showing up for the extra hour events and late night things with a very little understanding of what that actually costs for me and being told, hey, you're doing a great job. So, oh, hey, do more of it. And so that work culture left me burnout. Yes, the program had some success, but at what cost to me? And so Fernie, you talked about like leaving and how do you assess those questions? Like, that was something that eventually I had to ask myself. I absolutely loved being the leader of a collegiate recovery program. Had a lot of fun with my college kids. 
if any of them are listening, miss you guys, love you guys. Like so much fun. And I, and I did feel like I was coming back to like what drives us. I felt like I was making a difference and I had to go to my therapist about it because my husband, I love him, but he can be straight to the point sometimes. He said, Jessica, when he uses my full name, I know I'm in trouble. (laughs) He said, he said, we deserve more than the leftovers of you. Oh, oh, he really dug in that one. He's like, Mm-hmm. And you know, sometimes the things that cause us pain are the things we needed to hear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And sadly, again, within a system, within a system with a lot of flaws, mm-hmm. they couldn't give me the support I needed to not feel like a robot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And so when the support couldn't be given to me and I wasn't being the kind of mom I wanted, mm-hmm. I had to choose a career that again, I could afford mm-hmm. and it did come with sacrifices, yeah. <laughs> many actually, but my mental health has never been better. Yeah. I was going to say, cause that's the sacrifice of like jumping to, from like that stable, you know, paycheck of a salary to private practice like we're in. Mm-hmm. That's a huge jump and that's a huge sacrifice to initially go into. And then you see the payoff, like the short term scary. Building, building a client load and, and not having steady income for like four months, I was like, what did I do? And again, I walked away from a state job that had matching and 401k and health insurance and yep, all, yep. Like, all the things. And mm-hmm. so again, I'm going to honor my privilege here. I have a husband who works a full-time job and we could take his medical health benefits. Yeah. But had that not been an opportunity for my family, I'd still be, I'd still have to figure out how to manage in that job. And so I think that's a piece of the puzzle that that I also have to understand for my clients, even if they are miserable, there might not be a chance for them to leave yet. And so then I come in with conversations about boundaries and the looking at their job descriptions and what what is it that they're actually being asked to do versus what are they actually getting paid to do? And if there's a discrepancy, how do we bring that forward to our bosses, to our managers, to HR if needed, in order to help rectify some of that or to at least be compensated for it? And so like, because I, I, I do think before someone's ready to leap, <laughs> there's a lot of considerations. Um, and for some, that answer is going to be, I can't, I can't leap right now, even though I'm unhappy. And so then we have to look at it. All right, what can, what's in our control to change mm-hmm. in this present moment, in this present job to ease that some. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then what, how do we plug that into a long-term goal and those kinds of things? But like, the reality is like, sometimes it, Sometimes there's not an easy way out or mm. even a way out in general. Yeah. yeah. That was – I'm glad that you brought that up, Jess, because that was one thing I was thinking about, you know, for those who really can't – they can't leave their job, right? They can't leave their position. They can't go back to school. They have to stay. How do they try to make it better for themselves as best they can, right? Like you said, talk about boundaries. Let's talk about compensation. One of my favorite conversations to have with my clients who are female – Like, uh, we talk a lot about how do you advocate for yourself as far as compensation goes. If you're being asked to, you know, perform two roles, if you're being asked to take on someone else's workload, if you're being asked to, as you said, do things that are not within your job description, as they say, how do you get paid accordingly? Because you should 
regardless of what anyone else thinks, I'm, I can feel myself getting revved up here because I'm passionate about this. You deserve to be compensated for the work that you're doing. Mm-hmm. That's like one of my favorite conversations to have. And I learned this in college at our women's center. They did a whole – the women who were head of the, the center at that time are lovely. They're amazing. And um, they had a whole talk about how you advocate for yourself in the workplace, how you make sure that you're getting paid appropriately – you know, how you, you know, make sure that there are certain boundaries around. I don't know. I just, uh, I'm passionate about it, clearly. <laughs> well, and I think I ran into the, you know, this has come out a lot with teachers in the last few years too, of like, you're doing it for the kids. Mm-hmm. And so if you're doing it for the kids, that means you should be a superhero or you should be a robot and be able to function that way. Yeah. Mm-mm-mm. My heart hasn't changed, guys, but my, my limitations are now important to me. Yeah. And so like, of course I want to do that for the kids. Of, co- of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm only one human. Yeah. yeah. I think about that as something as simple as I love my clients and I need to sign off on the weekends. Yeah. Right. So if I don't, I don't work in crisis work anymore. Yeah. Right. So I don't have an on-call phone anymore. So, like, it's part of my responsibility, too, to make that boundary for myself and sign off. It doesn't mean that I care about my clients any less. It doesn't mean that I don't care about their well-being. It just means that I also care about my well-being, too. True. Right. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, ding, all, ding. Just, all the snaps. Yes, all yeah. them, right? Like, even just, like, understanding, like, your capacity for how many clients you can see in a day. Your capacity mm-hmm. for, like, how many sessions in a row can you do? Or your capacity for, you know, I'm not really – on if I had like a late night the night before, you know, seeing clients in the evening, like I'm not going to be great for a 9 a.m. client when the turnaround time is less than 12 hours. Like these are the boundaries, you know, to understand too, like sometimes clients being disappointed is because you're setting a boundary. Oh, yes. But, you know, and I also think it's important. You mentioned like attorneys earlier, Gabby. And when, from what I understand, clearly I am not a lawyer, but from what I've understood from the the several that I have worked with um, and and know personally is it's it is there's this expectation that you put in your time those first several years you this job is your life it doesn't matter if you're on vacation it doesn't matter if it's the weekend it doesn't matter if it's ten o'clock at night and so I guess and Jess you may not have an answer for this and that's completely okay but if you have a client like that who has a job where like this is the expectation if we get an email yeah if we get an email at 10 o'clock at night and the expectation is that we have to answer that maybe in five years that's not the case but right now it is how do you work through that with them i do actually have some individuals who have really high power jobs and and maybe not in those same classes so i don't know if people are gonna like my answer it's okay we're here to sometimes stir the pot I actually go back to whose whose expectation is it? Because is it in your job description that that is expected or required? Is it you that's having uncomfortability with waiting the 12 hours to answer an email? Is it your boss saying, I need you on demand 24-7, but isn't willing to give that back to you in return? Mm. Oh, I like that one. Who's setting that expectation? Where did you learn that expectation? Are we being compensated for that expectation? Because as a crisis worker worked at the men's only shelter, there was times where, where you take a call and, and it is like things are scary and high heightened and all those things. I got compensated for that and it and it was on a rotation. So I always talk about limitations. Again, I left a job where I felt like a robot. 
like we cannot show up as the best attorney, the best nurse, the best doctor, whoever that looks like. If we are required to be on guard for 24 seven, I don't even think our brain can fully reach a resting place if the opportunity to always be called on is there. And so then I talk about, again, depending on the profession and status of job and relationships and those kinds of things, I talk about conversations with employers. So like, for instance, one of um, the people that I love to work with, we talked about the difference between an email, a text and a phone call. Email is not urgent. Text message is getting like, hey, I need you to look at this, but probably within the next hour or two. And a phone call is, hey, I need you right now. How does you communicate that to your client or to your boss? And then also, what are the hours that you're willing to stay unless this is a life or death emergency? I'm off. And so that might not look, that might look like from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. But again, if you can have 10 p.m. to 6 a.m., you can talk about sleep patterns. You can get some self-care for yourself. You can have some stability versus a 24-hour platform. I don't know of any job unless you're an ER doctor and even they have days off that it is truly going to make the difference if you wait the six hours to sleep. The only thing I could think of would be like an attorney that's in the middle of like a high profile case or something that's like in court. (laughs) So then my question would be, okay, once this case is over, Mm -hmm. how much downtime break look like? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's, That's what I was thinking too, right? So there are periods of busyness and that we might have higher expectations of what's required at work, or there's higher expectations of us at work, I should say. But I, I, exactly what you both just said, right? Like, and then when that period is over, I'm thinking like tax season, right? Like when you're an accountant, you're working 60, 80 hour weeks. But after tax season is over, does it does it actually die down? Do you get to have a break? I think that's, I, I love that you said that. I think that's very important. When it goes back to the boundaries, I think any of us can push through things for a short period of time. Again, as delicately as I can say this, if we're chasing money over self-care, there's a lot of danger to not take a gap period or to set a boundary or an expectation of my mental health matters. My happiness has a cost attached to it. And so then we get in this really scary, dangerous pattern of work, 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 because we're going to pay for it, but then we don't have even time to enjoy And so that, again, I feel like I beat this horse a lot, but I really feel like it's important to continue to look at the whole picture. Again, because if you're kicking tail at work, but you're miserable, <laughs> that's not the quality of life that anybody searches for, even if it comes with a big title and a big paycheck. And I, I think it's important for us to note, too, that we, as we're having this conversation, we are talking, it sounds like more about people who are having maybe like more established long-term careers, higher end jobs, right? We're not maybe talking about the average individual who's working three jobs just to get by, because yeah. that is a much different Different living yeah different conversation different living situation and i just want to be really clear about that that we're talking about a very specific population Mm -hmm. um and that all this might not apply to someone who's just trying to get by and survive yeah yeah and that's why i think i start with that maslow's hierarchy of needs when someone Mm -hmm. talks to me about a career change because if you can't keep your lights on yeah Mm -hmm. there's that is going to be a really frustrating conversation talking about shifting when when our bare essentials and necessities aren't being taken care of. True. Very true. Yes. And so yeah. like, well, that could be a whole nother uh, <laughs> a whole nother episode. <laughs> another episode. <laughs> so I guess kind of tying this up up with a bow, just for the people who are listening, Jess, when you're talking about those hierarchy of needs, where do you start at the bottom and what goes to the top? Just so like if someone is listening to this, maybe they want to try to start to think about that for themselves. So again, 
at the very bottom is what is necessary for functionality of life. Our bills, our dependents, if we have children, um, our costs, our you know medical costs, all of those things. So sort of starting there. And then from there, I use a values assessment and I'm happy to send that over, but like a values assessment to kind of evaluate what's important to a person. And then from there, we kind of look at like culturally what's important of like, it's important to me that I can flack you guys and be like, listen, I'm lost. There is something going on today. First ever podcast. I was like, I think I'm in the system, but I'm not sure. I need to feel comfortable being vulnerable to ask a question and not feel like I'm going to be seen as someone who is unintelligent or someone who doesn't know the answer or those kinds of things for you reprimanded for that. And so things like that actually matter again to that happiness bank account. Like I come back to that quite often when I'm working with through this with a client, because again, if the work culture is we make a million dollars, but everybody is rude, nose up in the air and thinks they know everything like that's that's very stale and stagnant. And there are people who can achieve in that. There are people who can succeed in that. I'm, I, yay, that is not me. And so I talk about what culture is going to be important for the longevity and stability of everyone else. It's sort of like that. And the icing on the top is sort of like benefits, perks, PTO is extra salary. Um, so people like to be able to travel, working remote, like all of those kind of like perks are kind of at the high end, like or mm-hmm. top end of the hierarchy of needs because I think that we all. You know, we'd all love some of those amazing perks. But again, what I've noticed is the perks don't matter as much if the misery is high. Mm. And that's why I put them at the top. Mm -hmm. So there's some other resources. So there's like the Myers-Briggs, which is a personality assessment that gives you a four-letter code. And then from there, it'll actually help you tailor into careers that you feel like that the assessment feels like you'd be a good match for. Mm. There's also an assessment called the Strengths Quest, which I always like to talk about, especially for lovely clients who have sometimes have a hard time thinking that they're good at things. And it actually gives you your top five strengths. You can literally plug those into what's called ONET, O-asterisk-net.com. That is every government affiliated job that, you know, taxes and all things. You can plug those things in, whether that's the Myers-Briggs or the Strengths Quest, and it'll populate jobs wow. on ONET. You can do it for state. You can do it per different um, levels of degree. Um, it'll give you a median. It'll tell you if it's a bright outlook or if it's not outlook. It'll tell you if it's um, like a green job or if it's not. Like there's a wealth of information within these three docs. Three, two of them are assessments. One of them is a website. Anybody can view. The other two have a cost. Onet is free. And so we can use those to see what's available. Because sometimes I have people come to me and they're like, I want to do something else, but I have a darn clue what that looks like. <laughs> And then I'm like, all right, well, we're going to have to start somewhere. Um, and so that's usually why those assessments kind of give us mm-hmm. some overarching views mm-hmm. to look at. And so hilariously, just to give you guys some perspective, education, a train conductor, <laughs> counselor, behavior analyst. There was like five different things that were all kind of related um, for mine. Train conductor had me cracking up. Oh, that was one of my top conductor. jobs. I'm like, Choo-choo. Anyway, um. I feel like you're just, I, I don't know, just, I just have a feeling you're very good at like giving instructions and directions. I feel like you're probably mm-hmm. direct and like concise. Mm-hmm. That to me, I'm like a oh, train conductor. Sure. That makes sense. Okay. <laughs> until, and you know, I sat with a therapist, I went through it. And until they told me all of those things, Hey, you're really good at understanding. I think one of my strengths is that 
I can view things in a whole picture and notice that tray A, if we don't have it on the right route, it's going to run into tray B and that's Mm going to be a major problem. Um, And so being able to not only see problems coming, but then communicate them and shift the tracks that they need to go on. I was like, oh yeah, I I do do that. Hmm. I would say some of my trauma has influenced my brain's ability to do that. So I also bring that into conversations with clients. Yeah. Yeah. And then lastly, I'm going to add one more thing. Yeah, of Uh, course. I often ask people, who told you that you wanted to do this job? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like family expectations for careers and stuff. Legacy. Mm -hmm. Taking over the family business. Mm -hmm. All of those things, right? Yeah. I mean, how many – it's not uncommon to see a family where it's like my mom was a nurse, I'm a nurse, my sister's a nurse, my aunt's a nurse, or, or, you know, whatever career. Teachers, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. I like that question. It's complicated. That's what I that's what I think I want to end with. It's like it's super complicated and every person is unique and mm-hmm. why I love therapy. Well, I think that's why we enjoy talking about these kind of topics, right? Because they are it's all gray. Everything is gray. Yeah. Or it's all colorful, however you want to put it. But like it's not black and white is the point. Isn't there right? the book like what color is your parachute? Isn't that like a career book? Oh, I don't know that one. I'll have it to is. Look at you. <laughs> Gabby knows. Sometimes I know things. <laughs> but no, it is. I, 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 I love that you end on that, Jess, that it's complicated and there's yeah. not one size fits all. And it's a lot of self-exploration mm-hmm. and just figuring out what's right for you. Yeah. Just one of our you know, ending questions is if somebody's not ready to explore this with a therapist – what are your recommendations for them to maybe explore this on their own a little bit to decide like if they want to take this to the next level? I think that there are a lot of great resources that they can look through, such as some of those websites and assessments that I talked through. And I think the other thing that comes to mind as you asked me that in specifically career fields is what's holding you back? What's holding you back from, from trying? What's holding you back from talking to a therapist about it? Um, is that your voice or is that someone else's voice? And so those would be some things that, that I would consider. This might be, again, unruly of me. Also, look at your job of employment. If you work for a company that has lots of different avenues, look what's available. Mm-hmm. Like, it's okay for you to job search. Mm-hmm. I, I actually would tell you the best time to job search is when you have a job. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, it's true. Um, it's and, true. And so, like, start just looking at jobs that might be available in your company or an area that you're looking into and read the job descriptions and see and see what sticks out to you. One of the things that I think is important for me as a therapist to notice is your energy is going to tell your body and your energy are going to tell you something about it. Do you keep coming back to a job description? Were you like, oh, quick to say, no, I don't like that one. Did you go to bed that night thinking about what it would look like? Like, where are we spending our energy and mental time? Where do you spend a day dreaming? And start there. I like it. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I'm, I just want you to know, Jess, I'm going to use this all for my clients moving forward. <laughs> but thank you so much for coming on today. I This conversation was amazing. I really enjoyed talking about this yes. topic. So thank you for yes. making the time for us. Thank you so much yeah. for coming today, chatting with us, and you know, sharing you know these experiences with us and giving us some questions to think about. And I will offer, I am 
limited in my own resources. If people have questions or want to follow up with things, I'm happy to answer them. And if I don't know the answer, being honest with that and finding it. But yes, if people have these questions or things like that, they can always email you. Um, We'll add your email or email the podcast and we'll go from there. Thank you so much for coming today and chatting and speaking with us. And we look forward to having you back soon. I really appreciate that. It was a joy. Thank you. Thanks, Jess. Thanks, Jess. And if you like this podcast, please share it, rate us, review, all those fun things. And we'll see you guys next week. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Therapy for Women podcast. To suggest a topic, submit a question, or find a qualified therapist, visit therapyforwomencenter.com.